Good morning. Happy New Year. It's good to be back with you. We've seen the door close on 2022. We're looking forward to 2023 for me in particular, but I think for many of us in Christian leadership, we're so glad that this year has passed. <laughs> many reasons for that, but I'm focusing this morning on the holiness of God, and I can't help but contrast that with the scandals that we have seen in the Christian world in this last year, all the way from the Jerry Falwell Jr. episodes to Johnny Hunt, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, to the Southern Baptist Convention as an entirety with their pastors confessing that their attitude about sexuality and their behavior and conduct towards women has been a systemic problem for many, many years. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And it's not just the national ministries where this is a problem, the megachurch pastors that fail we see it in our own local churches. We see marriages dissolved. We see families broken, never to be brought back together again. Someone's believing in those family units that there's something better out there, something that they're missing out on. We are so pursuant of hedonistic pleasures that we take our faith for granted. Well, if we just go to church on a Sunday, if we take our kids to Awana on a Wednesday, if I'm involved in some way in giving or in service, I've done all that God requires. The problem comes down to, as I think about it, that we are, by and large as a nation, biblically illiterate, even amongst the Christian churches. It troubles my heart. I see this even in our seminaries as they're pumping out young men and women for ministry, they're lessening the requirements. They're taking away those courses and that level of courses that could, in a sense, wash you out of school. Anything to get to the practical, nothing is focused on the particulars. And that includes what we're talking about today the holiness of God. And the reason I think that we miss that is because we're not in the Word of God. If anything can change for this year, it is my hope that we as a congregation, this congregation that has been through so much in the last five years, that we will be united together in pursuit of God's Word. All of us, without exception, would be humble enough to say, I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. It's not enough to take the little pericopes I hear each Sunday morning and think, ah, yes, I have an understanding, but that we must be students, first and foremost of God, because there's no other place that we hear from God except in His Word. Yes, there are those instances where some people will say, well, the Holy Spirit has led me. The Holy Spirit has told me. And that's great. I don't mean to disparage that. But by and large, God says, this is my word. It is from this word that I will speak to you. Every day we should be in pursuit of him by reading this word, by studying this word. And when we do so, it must change us. 
It must transform us from what we were to what he wants us to be. As Doug Fern mentioned, we're in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. If you want to jump on your phones, iPads, or even maybe open a Bible to uh, this chapter, that would be great. You can read along with me. Uh, this is a very strange passage in that it's unique. Outside of Revelation chapter 4 in the New Testament, we really don't get an image of God's throne room anywhere else in Scripture, at least to this detail. Isaiah is a prophet raised perhaps, I believe, in a royal family in Judah. He's there towards the end of the existence of national Israel. They've been disobedient. They've rejected the God that they had used to give their faith and hope to. And Isaiah finds himself, we're not told where, we're not told when. He could be having something in the middle of the night. He could have been standing in the temple. But he has a vision. He sees something. And as we read through this, if you think that if this was you, you would be terrified, that's a good bet. It's just not something that we're used to seeing. So let's read and see what this vision is about. In the year, starting in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and said, and here's the important part, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. We're not told why God thought it was important for Isaiah to see this. We know that this idea of God being holy is repeated some 44 times between chapters 40 and 66 in the book of Isaiah. It's repeated in many other passages in the Old Testament, Jeremiah in particular, the prophet who probably benefited from Isaiah's prophecy, repeats this over and over again. But we know this, this is an association for Isaiah, the evangelical prophet, the messianic herald. He is talking about the king. He is seeing that which all of us will eventually see. He is standing in a place where all of us will eventually stand, in the throne room of God. It's a daunting thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Holy, 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 say the seraphim. These highest class of angels. Most scholars believe that Michael, Gabriel, and even Lucifer at one time were all seraphim, proclaiming the holiness of God, their wings covering them in humility, their feet their eyes. No one can look and behold the holy God and live. So Moses was told back in the book of Exodus. If you remember some of those stories, when man encounters holiness, 
It's always a frightful thing. Moses, that exiled murderer, now living as a shepherd, having married into a Midianite household outside of the precepts of God, thinking that his life of meaning and purpose was over, all of a sudden is confronted with a bush. Now, this is not a lush, lush tropical jungle. This is a semi-arid Middle Eastern landscape. And there is a bush, and it seems to be on fire, and from there comes a voice. And as Moses approaches, the voice says, hold on, you are standing on holy ground. You are in my presence. Take off your sandals. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of unworthiness. We can't come to God the way that we are. We have to prepare. Our sinfulness cannot enter into the presence of that holiness. Joshua found the same thing in Joshua chapter 5. They're, they're approaching the city of Jericho. They're getting ready to conquer it. God has seemingly commissioned him to lead the people of Israel after Moses is gone. But before this conquest begins, all of a sudden there's a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. And it says that Joshua falls and worships this man. And man says, hold on, take off your sandals. Again, you are on holy ground. And the angel, which is probably a pre-incarnate form of Christ, is telling him, I'm going to go before you and before the tribe of Israel, and we are going to conquer these Canaanite people. We can think of 2 Samuel, where David has recovered the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that structure, that box that has the cherubim cast in gold with their outstretched wings reaching towards each other, and in the midst of those wings, God has promised his people, so I shall dwell. God, of course, is everywhere at once, but he promised that his locality would always be there at that ark, and it's been gone from the center of Israel for quite some time, and David has recovered it, and he decides to bring it back to Jerusalem, perhaps even then thinking that he would build a grand structure, a temple where this ark could reside. And on their way, David is dancing, and he's worshiping, and his men are in great joy, God is coming back into their presence. And one of the Levites carrying the ark, as he was instructed, been purified, dressed correctly, carrying just the golden rods that slid through the golden rings that were attached to the side of that ark, all of a sudden the oxen stumbles. And out of concern for that ark, he reaches forth, as Uzzah does, and holds onto it so it doesn't spill. And what's the result? sinful man coming into the presence of a holy God. He's fried. He's killed. David is so upset by this, he decides to leave the ark there for now. He doesn't understand, nor would we. As much as we read these passages and we think about them, we're not really understanding what is going on, how this happens. Let's read this again. The Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. There is no one higher. There is no one more holy. The train of his robe fills the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
and they're shouting, holy, holy, holy. Now in Revelation chapter four, we have the four living creatures, not just the seraphim, who are doing the same thing. If you have time, don't read this at night because it's truly a frightening picture with four different faces for each creature. We're not told how many seraphim are here. Some people say, well, in Jewish tradition that there were seven, we're just not sure. But we do know Isaiah's response. It's absolute fear. It's a feeling of unworthiness. How do I stand before a holy God? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The word seraphim here possibly means fire. At minimum, it means an extreme brightness. These angels that were created to do nothing but proclaim the holiness of God and to achieve his will, God made them so that they also are a reflection of his holiness. They can't help it. To come within proximity of God, oh, the transference of his brightness. Moses encountered this, did he not, on Mount Sinai when he saw God? His face glowed like burnished bronze. He had to wear a veil. It was too much. But over time, that would fade, right? But then he would go back to be with God and talk to him. And his face, once again, would shine. Here's the thing, and to our purpose this morning. We are going to encounter this same God. We're going to stand in his throne room. We will have the same response as Isaiah. Who am I to come into the presence of God? Let's look as we jump forward into the New Testament to John chapter 12. Seems like a strange place to go after reading this passage. But John, the evangelist, this unique gospel of the four, he's quoting Isaiah, and he's talking about the unbelief of the people. He's in the middle, towards the end, actually, of the Passion Week, and he's quoting Isaiah. He's gone back to the Old Testament. Like I said, Isaiah is the evangelical prophet. He is the one most focused on the Messiah. And he says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Seems like a harsh passage, but really what we wanna focus on is what John says next. Isaiah said these things because, and, and pay attention here, he, that is Isaiah, saw his glory and spoke of him. What? How could Isaiah have seen Jesus? The only place that we see any recording in the book of Isaiah of the prophet seeing God is right where we're reading this morning in Isaiah chapter six that figure sitting on the throne. If we trust what John is saying, would certainly have to have been the pre-incarnate Christ in his glory, in his power. He, the creator of the world, the one that made a way for man and God to be united, for sin to be overcome. This is what he truly is. If you're like me, maybe you've seen some of the episodes of The Chosen on TV. 
the story of the life of Christ. It's truly been a fascinating journey. I greatly appreciate some of the points they bring out. But to think that a man, someone born of a woman, living a regular life like you and I, where's just the connection between Isaiah 6 and that man? That's the miracle of the incarnation, the glory of God. According to Philippians chapter 2, Jesus empties himself, the great kenosis passage. He empties himself of his glory so that he can become like you and me, taking upon himself the form of a man in all humility, subjecting himself to the same temptations and illnesses and, and problems that all of us face. It boggles the mind. How could that be? There's no way. Yet John is telling us that Isaiah saw him already in his glory. The readers of John certainly would have been compelled to go back to look through the book of Isaiah in that scroll if they could and understand that Isaiah here is talking about the image that he sees in chapter 6. And as I've already mentioned, this same author, John, has his own vision, right? Going forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, where he sees the same throne room, a little bit more detail, the, the crystal sea out in front of the of this throne seat, right? He gives us description of the precious gems and, and metals that are composing this scene. But we still have a throne room with magnificent angels, and they also are singing pretty much the same refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, this is the, the power of the New Testament. This is the power of salvation. God chose to leave that throne room to become like us. I don't know about you, but when I focus long and hard on what Jesus did, and I see as I read, I'm reading in my own devotions through the end of the Gospel of Mark right now. <clears throat> Jesus is being questioned, first by the chief priests, and then by Pontius Pilate, the Roman official. To one, he gives brief answers. To another, he refuses to say anything at all. But they're all asking the same question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Not because they really care, but because they want to trip him up and find a reason to justify their desire to have him murdered. This God who sits on a throne has not only come to earth and become like us, but he's now willing to subject himself to this ridicule. They slap him. They spit on him. And it's not just his own people, the chief priests. It's also the Romans, the Gentiles, the very people that he has come to save. Now abuse him. In a moment, in a few pages, they're going to hammer giant spikes through his wrists, through his ankles. They're going to hoist him on a tree. They're going to kill him. 
doesn't it cause you to weep? You know that it's your sins, my sins, that have affixed him to that tree. I find myself alternating between extreme anger at those people that they could treat God, my God, this way. And also deep shame that my sin is why he had to come. When we study the word of God, we put these things in perspective. We understand that Jesus did exactly that. The member of the Godhead, the creator of this world, came for us. It should change how you look at life. It should fundamentally alter your existence, if you understand that. Everything that this world has to offer you pales in comparison with the God that is calling you. Your family and friends, we're, we're, we're so frightened sometimes to say things to our neighbors about God. But Jesus wasn't frightened. It was awkward. If you watch this last episode of The Chosen, he's come back to his hometown of Nazareth and he's asked to say a few words in the synagogue service. And he does, right in front of his, his family and his friends. And with the exception of his mother, there is no one there that is wanting to hear him say, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. And they respond according to the law of Moses, and they lead him out to a cliff to throw him off in their great anger, not seeing, not realizing who he is and why he's come. But the time is not yet, he says to them. It will come, but it's not yet. Isaiah saw him. The apostles saw this glory. If we keep reading through the New Testament, we'll get to 2 Peter chapter 1. And there in 2 Peter 1, Peter says, we are not just preaching to you our words of wisdom, some nice platitudes, we are preaching with power and with strength because we saw him, that is Jesus, in his glory. He references the mountain. And he's talking about what we call the transfiguration, where Jesus leads three of his closest disciples as they go up to the side of the mountain. And for just an instance, Isaiah 6 is recreated in the life of Christ. In a blink of an eye, he begins to glow with that light. And a voice, the voice of the Father from heaven, identifies him as his son. And it changes those men forever. You can't come into the presence of God and not have it change you. That's all that I'm saying to you this morning. It has to change you. Whatever you're excited about right now in your normal everyday life, something happening at work, something happening in your family, some financial opportunity, or maybe you're distressed, you have anxiety over all these things, some illness, I say to you, when you understand who Jesus is, when you see that this is the King of glory, 
It must change your attitude. <coughs> it has to change your life. <coughs> Jumping ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's talking to them about who they are. And he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. And here's the crucial part, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. I started off this sermon by talking about scandal. Oh, the, the scandals that we hear about and see. The same word is used in the Greek here, scandalos, referencing Christ. You see, what Jesus did was a scandal of a different sort. It was a scandal in the sense that no one expected God to do what he did. <laughs> To come from his glory, to be a man, or if he was going to do that, he would certainly come as the men of men, right? He would be powerful. He would come on a throne, a chariot. He would be glorious. You could not withstand him. He would conquer the Romans with but a breath. That is the man they expected. Instead, they got a poor itinerant preacher out of a corner of Galilee who in and of himself didn't necessarily garner any respect, certainly not worship. And then he died in a horrible way. And Paul says that's the power of our gospel. Do you understand that? We preach him crucified, a stumbling block, a scandal. It is a scandal to the Jews. Think about how Jesus lived his scandalous life. Born of a woman, a virgin, if you would, right? Born in weakness. Wow, we have to leave. Herod is after us. Preaching a gospel that says, hey, we're servants. We're not kings. If someone asks of your coat, don't just give him your coat, but give him your shirt as well. What? What are you saying? You're the king of kings. You're a wonderful counselor, right? All those things that Isaiah says you are. But Jesus says, no, I've come to serve. I've come to die for those who are lost. Wait, what? Uh, how else is he scandalous? Well, wait a minute. He says, you know, if you do something nice, you'll do it for a friend because you expect something back. But Jesus says, no, we serve others, even our enemies, because that's what God wants us to do. The whole message is scandalous. No one saw that coming. No one expected that. Paul calls that in the book of Romans, the great mystery. No one saw it. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've given your life to him. You must live your life scandalously. 2023, it cannot be life any longer. 
the way that you knew it, the way that you've always wanted it to be. You must imitate your Lord. What does Jesus say to us? Pick up your cross daily and follow me. For the Jews, for God to be hung on a tree, to be killed by the Romans, to them it just confirmed what they always thought, that this was nothing but a man. They didn't see to imprint the vision of Isaiah on top of Jesus of Nazareth because they couldn't see it. But the apostles did. His followers did. It's what motivated them. Motivated them to give their life for Christ. How do we live a scandalous life? Think about how Jesus called his people to him. When he went out and saw his men, he called them away from the everyday life that they knew. You're no longer Galilean fishermen. You're no longer a tax collector. Follow me. It was a high calling. I don't believe that that calling is just for the apostles. I don't believe that calling is just for pastors, missionaries, people in full-time Christian service. This is the calling that everybody who believes in Christ receives. Stop being whatever you are, an accountant, an insurance worker, a doctor, a lawyer, a manual laborer, a carpenter. You no longer are that. I have a new plan for you. I have a vision for you. You're going to be a scandal to your family, to your neighbors. When I came to Christ, and I told my uncles, because I didn't have a dad, but I told my uncles that I felt like God was calling me into the ministry. Oh, are you crazy? Why would you do that? Do you know how little money they make? Yes. It doesn't make sense. To me, it didn't make sense because I was thinking, who am I? I'm chronically ill. I'm structurally unsound. I'm mentally fading. I'm three-quarters blind. I can't hear out of one ear very well. I'm fat. I'm not appealing to vision. I don't have any special gifts. And yet God says, follow me. I'm going to use you. See, that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, right? If we kept on reading down there, he says, for consider your calling, brothers. And he's not talking to pastors here. Get that straight. Consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. You see, none of us can take an out. Well, wait a minute. You're talking to those people that have something going for them. God can't use me. He doesn't want to use me. I'm going to sit this one out. I'm just glad I got my ticket punched for heaven. Are you? Because I tell you the truth. All of us will one day stand before the throne of God. It says in Romans chapter 14 that every tongue will confess, every knee is going to bow before God and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is at that moment 
that you're going to reconsider your life. And you're going to see those things that you cared the most about and worked the hardest for and strove for and regretted and the things that you wanted to save money up for is going to crumble like burning wood, hay, and stubble. And the only thing of eternal value in your life is how you served him, how you were scandalous for the cross, how you understood and anticipated your appearance before God in that throne room and your Lord who was a scandal for you. You need to be a scandal for him. A scandal in a good way. A scandal in a way in which your family and your friends would never have expected from you. As we anticipate this year, the only way that I know how to do that, to come within range of that happening to us, is to open up this Bible, to read it, to become a student of it, to let it penetrate your heart. And in so doing, then the Holy Spirit begins to move inside of you. And you gain a vision of what could be something that you probably never would have guessed in your pre-Christ days. I've had opportunity to meet people that I knew very well in high school. And when I tell them that I'm now a pastor, they're like, are you kidding? Was God hard up? <laughs> you can't be serious. And I say the same thing. I, he must have been. I don't belong here. I've done nothing to earn it. All I can say is that you follow Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Pick up that cross. Sacrifice. Next week, we're going to delve into 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to talk about obedience what it means to be obedient, the conformity to the person of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that that requires. Do you pray with me? Will you pray with me? And say, God, everything that I am, everything that I have, I give to you. You gave it all for me. I see where you lived. And you gave up that glory to come live here, to create a way for me to come to you. Your whole purpose in life was to glorify the Father. And now you've given that to me. I'm supposed to, with this life, no matter how long or how short it is, to glorify the Father. And it's not too late. There is such a thing as forgiveness. There's such a thing as reorienting yourself. It's not about achieving the greatest academic degrees or the highest earned income every year. It's about following him, doing what he tells you to do. It's hard. It's incredibly hard. How many times have I seen and felt in my own life? I've been doing this for five years. I've been doing this for 10 years. And you're so given to Christ, so willing to live for him. And then something happens. That woman in the office, she seems to appreciate you more than your wife at home. 
That guy down the street seems to be making a lot more money than you make. He's driving the latest car. There's got to be a way around this somehow. I've got to be able to blend that heavenly scene with my earthly concerns. And we lose sight of what it is that God's called us to. How many times have I seen young people come forward in a service? They've been called and they commit their life to Jesus. They kneel at a platform up front. They walk an aisle and they share with me afterwards. This is what it means. This is what God's called me to. And in a matter of months, they're right back to where they were. It shouldn't happen that way. If you truly encounter the throne room of God, if you see that vision that Isaiah had, that the apostles had at the Transfiguration Mount, if you understand that Jesus became a scandal for you and gave all for you, what else could get in the way for you? What else is that important? What else means that much to you? We only have a short window of time in this life. I don't know, sometimes I, I found myself talking me into saying, well, someday, someday I will give it all. Someday I will get rid of this habit. Someday I will become 100% commit. No, you don't know. Not only is our mortal life just that, it's mortal. But Jesus could be coming back. 2023 could be that year. You say, oh, preacher, people have been saying that for thousands of years. Yes, and they weren't wrong. He could be coming back. And that time is going to come where we stand and give an accountability for who we are and how we've lived our life for him. May we all hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the goal. For the apostles, it cost them their lives. That's how far they took this. For many Christians in the last 2,000 years, it's cost them everything. Jobs, positions, political appointments, families in some cases for the right reasons. Whatever it's going to cost you, only you know. And it's between you and your God. And God will speak to you if you study his word. Take those steps. Don't let 2023 go by and you find yourself either in the same place that you're at this morning or maybe not even as close to God as you are right now. Serve him. Serve him with all the gifts he's given you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your love and for your grace. I thank you for your just continued understanding and kindness for us in our mortal frame. Father, you build us and you shape us and you make us into the people that you called us to be. <clears throat> Father, forgive us for those times in which we don't really respond well. We get frightened. We consider the cost and think it's too high. But Father, that's because we've taken our eyes off of you. May we be focused on your word. <clears throat> May we understand and appreciate that we will stand before you someday. 
And even though we will still feel like we are in the midst of pure holiness and it's a frightening thing, yet, Lord, we want to bring with us the certainty that we have followed your Son, Jesus Christ, in obedience, that we have done a commission and service that he has called us to. It's never been easy. But, Father, with the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. May we be a congregation of Parkview that changes this city. Father, your son Jesus Christ changed the world with 11 men. What could he have done with 400 people? May this congregation, Father, be energized, committed, sacrificing for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.